0: Profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.
1: You can't use something that is mundane to try to create value. You have to create value with other things. But I'll tell you this you can't differentiate yourself based on things that almost anybody can do.
0: Welcome to Smart Strategy for CPAs, where I help you work less. And earn more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Alan Weiss is the author of more than 60 books, including Value Based Fees, Million Dollar Consulting, and Fearless Leadership. His consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, has attracted clients like GE, the Federal Reserve, and the New York Times Corporation. His list of qualifications and accolades stretches to the moon and back. And there's no better guest to have on the podcast than the man who wrote the book on value based fees. Alan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Geraldine. I I appreciate being here.
0: So I want to dig in with value-based fees and where accountants and CPAs need to begin the shift in thinking, because a lot of CPAs come from the place of pricing time and or materials, and they price it going forwards, whereas with value-based fees, you begin more at the end. So can you help us understand that shift in thinking?
1: Well, if any professional services firm or, or individual or solo practice or whatever, And you have to think in terms of the value you provide. You have to start at, how is this client better off when I walk away? And if the client's not terribly materially better off than he or she would be working with someone else, then you don't have much of a uniqueness. So you need to say to yourself, what is it I provide that is at least distinct? And how do I formulate it in such a way that the client sees the value? I mean, the point for all of us is that when we walk away, the client should be better off. But if you look at something like compliance work or tax returns, I mean, most people can do this using uh, computer software. So it's not especially important work in the client's eyes. So the important thing is to be able to provide a variety of services that are of value the client can provide for himself or herself, uh, and also make the first sale to yourself, which is the important thing.
0: So let's talk about making the first sale to yourself the important thing, because I think that there are some things that a lot of business owners cannot do. I mean, a personal 1040, okay, fine. But when you're talking about accumulated depreciation records and fixed asset reports, most business owners aren't going to do that with their own tax software. But let's talk about the first sale being to yourself. What do you think keeps most people and CPAs especially from appreciating the value of what they do?
1: Well, it's their own low self-esteem. They feel that their job is to put figures in boxes. They think their job is to <clears throat> do things by the hour, uh, by the time unit, like lawyers who charge in six minute increments. The trouble is it's basically an unethical an, an relationship because a client is served by a fast resolution, but the provider is served by a slow resolution. And as for what you said before about, you know, those depreciation and so forth numbers, most people look at a large tax firm, you know, an accounting firm with 35 or 100 people in it or, or two dozen partners uh, as a place where they, they do the grunt work and the legwork off to the side with, uh, with junior, junior people. But important stuff is done by partners at a much higher rate. But most of you listening aren't owners of those firms. You're in a solo practice or a boutique shop. Consequently, you have to separate out the compliance and the mundane and the everyday from special services you can provide. So you need to sit down. Just as a client looks to you for advice, you need to get advice uh, from someone like Geraldine or someone like me or someone else uh, and decide how to reframe it is what you're providing people. You know, I could make you a case. There's a difference between providing a general ledger or a spreadsheet for someone and providing financial security. It's all in how you phrase it.
0: So you're talking about really getting underneath the value of things like depreciation records, intangible capitalization items, and figuring out what the value of that is and then framing it in such a way that it makes sense to the buyer and that the buyer appreciates the value.
1: Yeah, for example, to help a buyer to evaluate his or her business correctly, which leads to more profit and greater margins now uh, and a higher sale price when they're ready to sell, has tremendous output, has tremendous results, uh, but simply to do the financial legwork without leading toward a higher valuation doesn't do that. Now I'm working with a partner now in a 35 person accounting firm, and I've helped him switch to what we call concierge accounting. And that is people charge, uh, he charges a fee, people pay for access for the year. Any of the compliance and tax work, he either subcontracts out or gives to the very most junior partners And He's helping his clients take a look at uh, what they should be charging for their products. He's looking at what their cost of creating a product or a service is, what the market will bear, what the proper margin is. These are invaluable. If you take a look at PPP these days, at government stimulus grants and loans from other sources like foundations, there's a tremendous opportunity for accountants not only to help put books in order and put processes in order to qualify for these, but also to learn the best time to ask forgiveness or how to ask forgiveness. These are tremendously valuable things, but uh, I think too many accountants see their jobs as putting numbers in boxes. So you
0: mentioned in there that it's invaluable and that it's tremendously valuable. And I think where accountants get stuck is how do you price the invaluable? How do you even begin to think about if PPP and doing all that correctly and finding out when the best time to get forgiveness, if you even do it,
1: is invaluable? What's the price on that? Look at it this way. Behind every corporate objective or even solo practice objective is a personal objective. Now, most accountants I know that are making anywhere near decent money, because most accountants don't make decent money, they're over delivering and they're uh, undercharging and they're working far too many hours. If you look at clients that way, and some clients are the same, if you can reduce a client's, that is his or her personal objectives are to reduce their stress, uh, to reduce their concern about the financial stability of the business. to be less concerned about whether they'll have adequate resources to pay taxes. Uh, to be able to to reduce their workload from 50 hours a week to 40 hours a week, that's what I mean by invaluable. And you start to build up what I call intangible value that way. Now, some of the value is tangible as in valuation, which I talked about before, but some of it's this intangible stuff. And especially since so many businesses that uh, solo accountants or small boutique firms deal with are closely held businesses, family businesses, these kinds of things are especially important, and you have to put emphasis on them. You can't just look at the books. You have to look at the relationship among the owner and his or her partner. You have to look at the relationship with family. All of these uh, you know, play a huge role in how valuable we can be.
0: So no argument there. And how do you get at when you're having a conversation with your client or you're trying to establish your own prices? How do you begin to put a dollar sign on stuff like that?
1: Well, what I think about is this, you know, if you look at the legal profession uh, and they help you make an acquisition and the acquisition took them you know, 300 hours or whatever and they charge you by the hour. Instead, what if you asked, what is the value of having made that acquisition without violating laws, with doing the proper due diligence and so forth? The same applies to a divorce or a real estate deal in the law. Well, let's, let's look at accounting. And the fact is if you can provide a 10 to one return, Nobody's getting a 10 to 1 return. You don't get a 10 to 1 return in the market. You know, it would have to be Apple stock before you got a 10 to 1 return. Consequently, if you can show that the tangible benefits are at least 10 to 1, and they're supported by these intangible and emotional benefits I spoke about, you've got a great deal there. And uh, you get to 10 to 1 fairly easily when you begin to show what something is worth. If you save people time, that save time is worth something. If you give them a better price for a product or service, that's worth something. If you help them understand where they're wasting money because they're paying for insurance they don't need, uh, or they haven't sufficiently investigated something that's simply been there forever, that's worth money. So those are the kinds of things that uh, you need to be looking at. And you need to get out of the stereotype that you're only supposed to add and subtract and divide and multiply and create documents because that's not really where the value is. And if you're going to be a trusted advisor, I mean, who else is in a better position to be a trusted advisor than someone you trust enough to give access to your financial affairs? Never made sense to me.
0: In terms of value-based fees, they're great for projects with a beginning, middle, and end, but... In order to assess the value, you have to have conversations with your clients to, deeply, to more deeply understand what's going on. So, but you're not going to do that if you have 300 clients on your roster who are all getting their returns done in the heat of tax season from February to April. So how do you more appropriately value price business tax returns for your business owning clients without having you know, these longer conversations around really trying to understand what their goals are?
1: Well, you can't square a circle. I mean, you can't charge value-based fees for compliance work that's undifferentiated. And if you wanna tell me that certain things have to be done, like tax returns, I agree with you. But you can do that either by some contracting them out to people who would appreciate the business and don't mind making 150 bucks an hour or whatever it is to do people's tax returns to free your own time up. And there's this mythology because you know, from my view, you get into tax season, and accountants act like they're overwhelmed; they can't do anything else. And you know, don't talk to me for four months or whatever it is. But if you handled your workflow correctly and you subcontracted out and you looked at bigger things, you would have the time. It's very important to understand. For example, my accounting firm that handles my stuff is large. You know, they must have I don't know a couple of dozen partners, and and I don't know how many people, and they're they're national. But they're, I'm just talking about their local office. But every every month. Every week, actually, they send me a a video I can click on, which has four or five ideas for my firm. Now, two or three of them might not be good because they're for larger firms, but one or two are good for me. And they do this every year to make me reliant on them. They also give me proactive suggestions. They tell me how to pay early for certain what they call pass-through business, which reduces my state tax considerably. They're always looking for ways to save me money that I would never otherwise know about. So, you know, Geraldine is right when she says there are certain transactions you can't do with computer software, such as how you do this kind of thing, but they're well worth it, you know, to save me nine or 15 or $30,000, and they're making better money that way too. So you can't use something that is mundane to try to create value. You have to create value with other things, but I'll tell you this, you know, when I started in consulting in the seventies, there was a big eight accounting firms McKinsey and uh, Bain and ADL and whoever was around back then, Boston Consulting, they were basically accounting firms. And then they couldn't do any more accounting. I mean, how much accounting can you do? And they sat around looking at people they were paying $250 an hour, figuring out how to bill them out at $450 an hour. But then what happened is, they decided to get into consulting work because they already had this trusting relationship with their clients. So they shifted from some solely accounting to consulting work because they had the trusting relationship. Well, today there aren't a big eight. There are only about a, you know, a big 2.5. And the reason for that is they continue to charge by the hour. They continue to look as, at their time as the important value, their presence, instead of their output. And so here they had these wonderful relationships with organizations, but you know only companies like McKinsey and a couple of others have really survived today uh, as major consulting operations. Anderson's a good example, but it's Accenture now because of the scandals they've had in the past. So let's go back to
0: undifferentiated service, because I think a lot of accountants provide a sort of standard set of services that looks from one CPA to the next around the corner. You cannot tell the difference, at least from the outside looking and from, um, if you're a lay person. What are some things that come to mind for you? Not that you're necessarily in the space, but if you were to differentiate yourself in a meaningful way, what would that look like? You mean as an accountant? Yeah.
1: Well, you can't differentiate yourself based on things that almost anybody can do uh, unless you added some extra services to it. I mean, this might be a simplistic example, but you know, bookkeepers are a dime a dozen. And I don't know what the general rate is here. I know what I pay my bookkeeper, but my bookkeeper comes to my door and picks up my financials once a month, does them, sends me all my financials back with a comparison to last year and the general ledger and all this stuff, and it delivers them back to my door. So I get them electronically, also the physical copies because of the bank statements. So she picks up and delivers, and charges me 300 bucks a month. And at the end of the year, she helps reconcile my figures with my tax accountants so that they, everything is, is, I don't even understand what they do. To me, it's like magic, but you know, everything is proper and I won't get arrested. So, I mean, that's a minor thing, pick up and delivery, but it is an example of trying to change a bit uh, what I said before about those newsletters with the videos—if you—if ne- you do something proactively with your client, you provide them with ideas, you provide them with alternative views. That's something that not every firm doing compliance work will do. So you have to add to it somehow. Now you know if you're happy just sitting back and doing compliance work for X hundreds of dollars an hour, uh, and like a like an assembly line, and and you know working 15 hours a day during tax season, okay, I'm not trying to change your mind, but frankly. Uh, You can look at just a few professions in this country, like accounting, like architecture, where the base income of people in those professions do not rise commensurate with other people and with the economy. And if you look at the statistics right now, as we're recording this in in mid-January, one of the biggest projected rises in the next few months, and I'm predicting a business boom, by the way, one of the biggest projected rises is in professional services. It leads everything else far and wide. So if you're in professional services, which I think financial people are, accountants are, my suggestion is you grab onto that wave and start surfing it. Otherwise, it's going to churn you into the bottom. Great. So
0: I still want to dig into how to begin to assess value for for the qualitative stuff. What are the questions that you teach your clients to ask their clients when they're trying to better appreciate the value, the qualitative value of the services that they provide.
1: I ask them these questions. I ask them, how will accomplishing this, not the service, it's what the service accomplishes, it's the result, the outcome. How will accomplishing this improve your life? How will accomplishing this make you feel better? How will it reduce your stress? How will it add to your career? How will it add to your sense of self-worth? How do you think it will add to your image? Yada, yada, yada. And I actively pursue very personal improvement areas where people can tell me how much. I mean, I said to one client once, if I reduce your work at the office from 60 hours a week, which is what he was working, to 50 hours a week, you know, if I felt 40 was out of the question, but if I reduce it from 60 to 50, he said, well, my wife would love that. I'd be home for dinner. I mean, she's, she's all over me about this. She would love that. I said, well, what's that worth to you? And he said, that is invaluable. I didn't ask him how invaluable. That's good enough. Okay, but then what
0: do you do with the dollar
1: figures? You've met, you put a dollar figure on it and you stop being so chicken about it. You know, I mean, if you're dealing with um, a, an organization that's doing a couple of million dollars a year, you know, you charge them 15 or $20,000. If they're, if they're doing 50 million a year, you charge them $100,000. I don't mean to be flippant about that, but you look at these circumstances, you look at who you're dealing with, You know, obviously it's different if you're dealing with a solo practitioner versus a boutique firm versus a a large firm. You look at with whom you're dealing, you look at the monetary improvement, which we talked about. Now you look at the non-monetary improvement and you say the following, what is a dramatic return on investment for them and equitable compensation for me? And it's never going to be an hourly amount. And you have to be able to ask that question. And people are asking that question in consulting all the time. It's not difficult. Lawyers don't do it and accountants don't do it. They are the worst transgressors of this. Yeah, And I know that because if you, if you throw a rock down the street and you'll hit four accountants, they'll all say the same thing. I'm overworked and underpaid. Well, that's not a government policy and it's not the fault of your clients. It's your fault.
0: All right, had to work hard to get that answer out of you. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the piece about being chicken about it because I think a lot of people are... It really makes their head bend to think about going from $250 an hour to charging $25,000 for something when annually they would have made $3,000 for the same amount of work. So how do you, like, what needs to happen for a person to make that $180 in their own mind where suddenly they're going to get paid eight times more charging this way than they are when they're
1: pricing hourly? The first thing you do is stop calling yourself an accountant. <laughs> okay. Start calling yourself, I'm serious. And start calling yourself a financial expert. Right there, you have to you have to change your self-image. I tell consultants, do not call yourself consultants, call yourself experts. You know, the, the people say, oh, the speaking business is dying. Well, nobody wants to hire a professional speaker, but they want to hire his expertise. And so stop calling yourself an accountant. The second thing is learn to focus on the results that you provide, the results that you generate, and not on the tasks that you perform. And this is a real mind change for a lot of people because they, they if you look at their calendars, Their calendars are full of tasks. If you look at job descriptions, job descriptions are full of tasks. They should be full of results and full of outcomes. So ask yourself the question I talked about at the top of this broadcast. How is the client better off after you walk away? And that improved condition is what you charge for. But nobody is better off just because they have a tax return. People are better off because they have a tax return they're absolutely certain about is safe or that is going to get them a refund, or has minimized what they owe. You know, the difference between evading taxes and avoiding taxes isn't exactly a broad line. And outstanding financial experts can help you avoid taxes without doing anything illegal. And that's worth a tremendous amount of money. So you have to look at yourself as somebody who provides results for clients once they, quote unquote, walk away, they're better off. And so they want to keep using you but it's not about your physical presence and it's not about what you do each hour.
0: Great, this has all been super useful. So last question here, one of the places where I see my clients getting stuck is that they have a very difficult time letting go of their own clients who are preventing them from growing their own businesses. I liken it to like the monkey with the vines trying to get from one side to the other and they will not let go of the previous vine to keep on swinging. They just hold right on and then they just dangle there. How do you address this fear and the guilt around letting go of the bottom 10 or 30% of your business and your client roster, especially when those are um, long or perhaps closely held relationships?
1: Well, the first thing is you want clients and not pets. And so just because you've had somebody around a long time doesn't mean you keep them a long time. In fact, you're probably not doing them much of a service because you're used to them and you're doing the same rote stuff, R-O-T-E, all of the time. The the second thing is what we need in this business is respect, not affection. I mean, I don't care if people like me. It's nice if they like me, but that's not my primary objective. My primary objective is that they respect me. You know, if you want unconditional love, get a dog. I have two dogs. So you're not looking to keep people around you. What you're looking at is to grow. And, you know, the only people I've ever seen coast are people who are coasting downhill. You can't coast uphill. And so if you want to grow your skills, grow your abilities, grow your business, you need to let go of the bottom 15% or so of your client base every 18 months or so, because you're not doing them a real service, and they're not as profitable for you if they're even profitable at all anymore. And, you know, I'll tell you, I'll give you a different take on those monkeys you talked about. When I was very young, we had this thing called monkey bars in the schoolyard, and you climbed up, you grabbed the bar, and you're supposed to swing across just using your arms to the other side. But I would get to the first bar and I'd hold on for all I was worth. You know, it looked like a 2000 foot drop and my knuckles would get white and my arms would get cramped and I'd fall two feet to the ground. And after all these unsuccessful attempts, I'd watch my classmates and the best ones counterintuitively let go. They let go and reached out with one hand. Then they let the other hand go and reached ahead of the prior hand and the momentum took them across the monkey bars and they traversed the monkey bars. I learned to do that finally. And what we have to do in life is reach out in order to let go. It's counterintuitive, it can be scary, and I'm not saying you let go with both hands, but you have to let one hand go to reach out. And you cannot, to mix metaphors, run down a track with a 100-pound pack on your back and expect to win. And that 100-pound pack is all those old clients who you really should let go of. Mm.
0: I respect your advice and I like you. (laughs) Well,
1: you like me too, that's great. I don't don't have to get a third dog, thank you.
0: (laughs) Alan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast.
1: Thanks for the opportunity and good luck to you, Geraldine.
0: Thank you so much, Alan,
1: for coming on the podcast.
0: For a while, I had been trying to seek the magical formula for how to derive or quantify results that are clearly qualitative. And what I got out of this conversation is to stop trying to determine an exact figure with a single finite answer the correct single price, and instead make sure that the financial value is there with something like a 10 to 1 ROI, and then suss out the qualitative value. And having that will simply undergird the value you're providing, and it will back up your price. So to say the exact same thing more concisely, stop obsessing (laughs) about a single right price. And secondly, and perhaps just as importantly, is to stop being chicken. Nobody died from ever quoting a price that a client didn't go for. If you wanna increase your profits without scaling by using staff, then it's all about positioning yourself as an expert and properly packaging and pricing your expertise. So if more episodes on pricing will help you, check out episodes 111 and 106 with Jonathan Stark and 81081 with Ron Baker. If you're ready to drop hourly billing so that you can build great relationships with your clients, but you're not sure where to start, take my free five-day email course, Better Pricing Strategies for CPAs. It's free, it's easy to follow, and you can find it at my website, shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week.